0: Turn in your Bibles, please. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Norm has done just an extraordinary work in this, uh, laying the foundation for this in the last four weeks, doing graduate-level love. We're just going to wrap that up here today. Uh, And I'm feeling a sense of great privilege uh, to be able to preach on the, the Sunday prior to election prior to Election Day in this country. Um, I don't know that it's something I've always been able to do. Uh, It's something that I'm I'm very glad to be able to be a part of this morning because I think that it it gives just a, a phenomenal opportunity to remember our roots, to remember our calling, to remember our identity, who we are as people of God, who we are as Christians who are called to, uh, to embrace the life of his kingdom in us and, and to live out that citizenship in the midst of this temporal nation, in the midst of this culture, in the midst of this place. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5. We're wrapping up our graduate-level love here this morning. But before we do that, will you just pause with me and uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, we give this time to you not because uh not because you don't already own it but because we need to remember that you own it <clears throat> we are yours everything's yours so we give everything and everyone to you take our hearts take our minds this morning take Take our thoughts, let everything be captive to your will, subject to your grace, called to your love. Show us your ways here, Lord, and speak, speak to us, for your name's sake, amen. So, in graduate-level love, we've had these We've had these uh, comprehensive advances. We've had these, what does it look like to, um, to learn how to love? Because that's what Jesus said would be marked for his people. The mark of, his pers- of, of, of a person who are following in his footsteps is someone who loves. It says they will know they are Christians. They'll know you are my disciples by your love. We've looked at what that means to love one another, to love neighbors, to love strangers, to love ourselves. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we have to talk about, we have to get back to the core, maybe the most difficult challenge, the most difficult mission of the disciple. So, this morning, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to love your enemies? What does it mean to be a people called to love our enemies? Because it is an unmistakable identity marker of the life devoted to Christ. If you, if you are <laughs> tracking with me with that, um, I just want, we're going we're gonna to just define that right off the bat here. We're still we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 5. We see, uh, starting in verse 43, "'You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor.'" And hate your enemy. I mean, that just becomes the correlation. He's he's implying a correlation there that existed at the time, is natural for us to conclude as well. You have heard the law that says, "Love your neighbor, and hate your enemy." But I say, "Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you." In that way, you will be acting as true, true children of your Father in heaven, for He gives His sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you any different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, before we immediately start trying to find loopholes, I'm going I'm to cut a couple of them out. When He says, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect, we're not talking moral perfection, we're talking about maturity, a, tra- a trajectory of maturity. The word there has to do with that you are to be grown up, you're to have a graduate level kind of love, you're to have grown steadily towards a maturity that looks like your Father that looks like your father in heaven. Because your father in heaven, this is the way he does things. This is his value. He gives the rain to the just and the unjust, and he causes sunlight to shine on the wicked and the righteous. And this is how you show that you are children of his. So before we start looking for the loopholes and say, well, I can't be perfect, it's not moral perfection he's challenging you to. He's challenging you to a trajectory of maturation, of maturity, of saying, I'm not going to stop growing up in the life of my heavenly father, I'm not going to be one who stops growing up and looking like my father in heaven, okay? Secondly, we go, well, I don't know if we're supposed to be earning towards a particular reward. What do you mean what reward is there? Is that, well, Jesus is talking about one. The blessing of God, this whole, this whole, the Beatitudes is Jesus sharing the secrets of what it looks like to live a life of sacred blessing, a life that God favors and says, I just want to show, shine a light on this life so that people can pay attention to see this is what it looks like to live out holiness and righteousness. This is what it looks like to see heaven on earth. This is what it looks like to see the life of the gospel, the life of Jesus himself Coming through radical ordinary people. So the, now that we got those two loopholes out of the way, what does this mean? What does it look like? First of all, loving enemies is not the same as just being nice. You will not find that in the scripture. It tends to be the core value of Midwest of, of Western Christianity and of our Midwestern culture is nice. Are they a nice person? Are you a nice person? Do you come from a nice family? Do you Niceness. Niceness somehow seems to be this high pinnacle value. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about not the same as just being nice. See, loving your enemies is actually, it is appealing to God for their good and grace. To love someone is to treat them as special and important. Now if I say the word enemy I'm not sure what comes to mind. I'm not sure. Because we all have a different context in our life. We all have a different world that we're occupying, a different neighborhood, a different family situation, a different work environment, a different political affiliation. We all have something different that discover that uh, that that details our attachments. But somewhere in there do you feel opposed? Somewhere in those attachments, somewhere in those relationships, do you feel opposed by someone? Do you feel they don't get it? (laughs) Do you feel I can't believe how oblivious they are? Do you feel, man, they're way off? Do you feel if I could just get through to them? Do you feel opposed? That's what we're going to hone in on. Do you feel opposed? And what do you do when you sense that opposition? What does it look like to love like Jesus? What does it look like to love your opponents? What does it look like to love our enemies? Because here's what happens most of us don't actually have villains in our lives. And that's what we immediately tend to want to jump to. Well, what's your enemy? Oh, it's this, it's this ultra-bad person who just is malicious, and they want real bad things to happen. Uh, any of us don capes and walk around doing good works for those press releases, and you know we have, we have a superhero complex, I don't know those people. So in the same way that I don't know a superhero, I don't tend to know any real villains. Okay, these are caricatures and we want to box people out that way. When we're talking about enemies, when we're talking about opponents, here's what that means. Viewing others as an enemy happens when we look at them as a problem to solve rather than a person to relate to. So we cannot love enemies if we are content to let problems stay bigger than relationships. This is language that's common in my house, (laughs) okay? Um, This is is language that's common in my house and, and in many of our friendships is this language of, is your problem bigger than your relationship? Or are you keeping your relationship bigger than your problem? And I will not deny that more than once there has been the statement made, what is the problem here that is making, you know, what is the problem bigger than the relationship? And the answer has been you. The problem is you. That's opposition mode. That's enemy mode right there. That is where I'm saying. Our, our attachment has become a separation. Our connection has become a liability. And this person who I have great affinity and affection and, and love for is someone who is a problem to solve right now. How many of us enjoy being treated like a problem to solve? when someone approaches you trying to figure out which words to use which ways to tweak things and treat you almost like a machine that if i just say this in the right way and i just make sure that i do it in this presentation if i use this word this phrasing along with this gift then maybe i can get what i want do you know when you're being manipulated like that most of us do most of us most of us know because there's something disconnected in the relationship we go this is not, there's not a real connection. It's going through the motions. Our Facebook friends, the family member who you're looking forward to seeing at Thanksgiving dinner or the family member you're looking forward to not seeing at Thanksgiving dinner, the conversation you're gonna try to steer away from, the topics that aren't allowed to come up on the table What happens when we start looking as people who like their problems to solve <clears throat> instead of people to relate to? Here's what we have when Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What are you praying for those who persecute you? What are you praying for those who oppose you? what are we praying for those who oppose us if we are praying in the way in the manner of Christ it looks like it looks like love and grace it looks like lord have your will let your will be done it looks like lord have your way did i mention that this is hard Did I mention that? Did I mention that this is hard? It is. I'm not going to deny that. But it's important. It's important. It's important. It's so important. We can make enemies in the blink of an eye. We can make enemies in in just the slightest mistake. You ever mishear the tone in someone's voice and walk away going, I can't believe it mumbling or replaying the tape in your head and trying to figure out why, why did that hurt? Did you ever have, have, a, have something else on your mind and this problem that you're trying to figure out and then someone who you really care for or someone who you don't really care for or just a stranger in your, in your workplace who asks a simple question and you snapped at them or were short with them or, or had less patience than you know is good? How do we become people who spontaneously, naturally, out of habit, out of practice, out of character, and out of identity, love people we feel opposed by? That's the question here this morning. Before we go further with that, let me ask you this. What does it mean to see other people the way God sees them? What does it mean to behold this other person in front of you, or this person on the TV, or this person across the table, or this person across the street, or this person in the next lane over? What does it mean to behold them with God's eyes? Enemy mode, or or treating other, you know, or, or loving our enemies sometimes looks like less honking on the, uh, in, in, in traffic, and more praying for the person who has really just interrupted your day and morning in sense of urgency and importance. Loving our enemies sometimes looks like being on the phone and having been on hold for 29 minutes and then finally getting a human being And not taking out that frustration on them, but having a gentleness and a graciousness in our speech as if it were seasoned with salt, which is what Paul reminds us to do. Because there's someone on the other end of that line who Jesus died for because He loves. There's someone on the other end of that line. There's someone behind that steering wheel. There's someone... Who lives next door to you but whose grass clippings or whose leaves or whose dog or whatever it may be makes a mess in your yard. And Jesus died for them because He wanted to demonstrate the love of God for whom? For His enemies. See, Romans 5.8 says that, reminds us of that and calls us to that. Romans 5.8 says that it was the demonstration of God's love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Elsewhere in that very chapter, he says, while you were still his enemies. So what does it look like for God to have an enemy? When God has enemies, what what does it look like? What does he do with them? Well, in Jesus, in Jesus, God demonstrates his love for them. In Jesus, God demonstrates his love for people who oppose him. That is really hard. So if we if we will learn if we will learn to love enemies better we need to intentionally develop god's sight and remember who god sees when he looks at someone You have never met a mere mortal is what CS Lewis said You have never met a mere mortal you have met and encountered countless images of God that the cross has demonstrated an infinite and extravagant love for. But the reality is this is like, the kind of the way that we like to see it. What's our next slide there? Okay, so I just saw this this week and I thought it was hysterical because it's just a little too accurate. So, we have a graph, and it simply says, here's the sins I struggle with that are on the left, okay? This is the relative badness is how high does that bar go. Badness of the sin, how high is the bar? On the left, the sins I struggle with, they're not very bad. But whoa, Nellie, that sin is bad, those other people better start repenting. That's the sins other people struggle with. So if the sin, I struggle with this sin, you know, it's probably only feel like it's this bad. But if you struggle with something, it's probably, yeah, it's a really bad sin and you probably need to start repenting on that. Is this, how the way, is this the way that it is? Is this really how it is? It's not a trick question. <laughs> it's not. No, this isn't how it is, is it? In fact, it's the opposite. When people confronted Jesus about this, and he said, well, how do I I, take care of this this speck of dust? How do I cause my brother to repent? How do I I change this person? It was really the the, the question. How do I get somebody else to change? When the question was presented to Jesus, how do I get someone to change, Jesus really said, okay, you got to stop, stop worrying about the speck of do- sawdust in their eye and you've got a plank in yours. It's really, it's the opposite. The sin that I struggle with, I need to treat like that is a big deal. And I need to, to recognize the dispensation of God's grace in the lives of those around me, in my neighbors and coworkers and family members and strangers And opponents. But I can't do that without developing some God sight, without reminding myself, without saying, God, how do you see this person? Who is this person to you? And if I don't land at a place that says they are a beloved image bearer, a beloved creation who is created in God's image to demonstrate His glory and bring forth his kingdom and proclaim his love, I'm not, I'm not landing in, uh, according to Scripture. I'm not seeing what, what Scripture would have me see. <clears throat> Colossians 3, Paul, Paul uh, makes sure that we get a hold of this. Now, this wasn't talking about sin… In Colossians three, he was talking about faults. You know those character things that just irk you because maybe somebody likes a different sports team that you than you do. That's a fault, not a sin. Okay, and yet somehow we just get these enemy modes. I mean, I, I I can remember some seriously, I mean, embarrassing conversations as a as a teenager anymore between friends who were Notre Dame friends and fans, and friends who were Michigan fans. Just embarrassing, embarrassing opposition and, and embarrassing vitriol that you just go, like, wow, this isn't really like life. I mean, this is really just a game. It's not a… It's, these aren't life statements and, and life connections or life allegiances. Scripture tells us to make, to make allowance or make room for one another's faults. That includes the faults of Michigan fans. And that includes the faults of Notre Dame fans. (laughs) And maybe that allowance is bigger for one group than it is for the other. Each of us deal with many shortcomings that we need big grace to cover. Loving enemies requires a heart aligned with God, which views ourselves and others through His grace. Growth of our love for enemies is the single greatest indicator of a vibrant Christian life. I would double down on that. I would, I would triple down on that. Growth of our love for opponents, growth of our love for enemies, is the single greatest indicator of a vibrant Christian life. I would quadruple down on that. <laughs> I cannot emphasize this enough. It is not only the foundation of what Jesus is saying in this grand ethical treatise of the Sermon on the Mount, it is included in all of the Gospels, and it is demonstrated through the course of every narrative that we have regarding Jesus' life or the people who closely lived with Jesus and then, and then advanced the church immediately afterwards. So much so that even when Paul is literally bound, literally imprisoned, and literally being opposed, literally, okay, not just in a metaphoric sense, but literally in front of somebody who can hand him death or life, he preaches the gospel to him in a way that's, that is compelling him to believe in the love of God, in the salvation of his soul through the work of Christ and Felix says, "Do you think you can convert me here when you're supposed to be giving a testimony on your own self-defense and why I Don't you know what I can do?" So much so that it's included when Peter is imprisoned. When we have apostles imprisoned in the early church and suddenly angels come and let them loose. What happens? Guards are ready to kill themselves. And we have the apostles, those who are actually the victims, those who are actually the prisoners, intervening and saying, no, don't do that. Bringing them good news and and demonstrating God's love to them, ushering them into the eternal family of God. So much so that Jesus, hanging, nailed to a cross... Struggling for words and breath because you suffocate to death when you're crucified. Doesn't talk to his friends and have a conversation about how he's going to miss them or that they they can put their hope in him because this is all going to be okay. He talks to his father and he forgives his enemies. As Brendan Manning said, he dies whispering forgiveness over those who crucified him. I can't, I can't stress this enough. It is so hard, but it is the single greatest indicator of a vibrant Christian life. Are we growing in love for our enemies? Because Jesus told us in, in this Matthew chapter 5, anything less than that is what you expect from good people. Anything less than that, returning blessing with blessing, being friendly to your friends, being nice, anything less is what we expect from average good people. And yet we are called to be children of light, children of heaven, demonstrating a heavenly Father's love, demonstrating a citizenship in eternal kingdom where enemy love is the only reason any of us are there. Because if God doesn't love his enemies, we have no place in there. We were never invited to the table. Not one of us on merit or good works or good looks or good jobs or healthy bank accounts, not one of us are invited to the eternal table for anything good that we have done. We are all invited because God loves his enemies because God loves his opponents. God loved those who would oppose him, even when we didn't even know it. All of us are there, all of us are here, because grace is God's love for his opponents. And we are to freely give what we freely received. We must never forget that there were no saved people in the upper room atonement had not happened yet there was no resurrection at that moment jesus shared a meal in the upper room and he blessed everyone at that table and not one of them were yet saved they were all his enemies even the one who was ready to betray him later that night he washed the feet of every one of them he blessed every one of them he loved every one of them and not one of them was a christian yet So we follow the narrative and we say, did Jesus live this if he preached it? And he, the answer is yes. Did his people live this because he lived it in front of them? And the answer is yes. When they receive the Holy Spirit and they go out into the world, into Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and we say, do they love their enemies the way that Jesus did? And the answer is yes. They never stopped. It was the marker of what made the Christians noticeable and what made the Christians people that caused confusion everywhere they went why are you doing this? Don't you know that our people don't like each other? And we had a church that said, actually, our church is filled with a bunch of people who shouldn't like each other. And yet, by the grace of God, they share life in Christ and they love each other. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, people who in that society had a natural opposition in Christ and because of the Holy Spirit shared the table and said, no, we all belong to the Lord because he loves his enemies, so do we. And it caused so much confusion (laughs) because it turned everything upside down and we said, you're breaking the rules. The rules of the world are you love your people and you hate who aren't your people. And God said, my people all the world for God so loved the world let me wrap up for real let me wrap up loving our enemies will look different at every stage of this continuum from loving those who are not us to loving those around us to loving those very different than us to loving those actually opposed to us When the disciples learned how much forgiveness they were going to have to practice if they were going to follow Christ, their response was, Lord, increase our faith. That is to be our prayer as well. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, increase my love for the people who I feel opposed by. Lord, increase my love for the people I feel opposed by. Because in this way, your kingdom comes. In this way, your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And like I said, I felt privileged to bring this message with fear and trembling this morning, two days before an election, because the world is never going to need Christians who love their enemies more than they will come Wednesday morning. (laughs) Our hope is not in any ruler who will be ordained by God on high through any process that he would choose to establish how one nation will rise or fall. Our hope will always be in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope will always be in a God who loves his enemies. Our hope will always be in the resurrection of Christ who has defeated the one Real threat to our world, which is sin and death. Our hope. Our hope is in the love of God. The worship team is going to come and, and close us out this morning with uh, appropriately, <laughs> in, in worship and in reflection. I just want you to remember this this simple truth. If there is any confusion, where we're on the fence, where we're confused, if we don't exactly know, always watch Jesus. Always watch Jesus and say, that's the way I'm going. Okay, always.